0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the release of body cam and other videos by the Memphis police chief of the arrest and merciless beating of Tyree Nichols, who later died from vicious kicks and punches from five black police officers with the Scorpion unit who were fired and charged with second-degree murder. Joining us to discuss the culture of violence in these so-called elite squads and the failure of command to know what is happening at the street level is Cheryl Dorsey, a retired sergeant of the Los Angeles Police Department who worked patrols, narcotics, and vice assignments in all four bureaus of operation. Raised in South Central Los Angeles, she embarked on a career in law enforcement at an early age beginning with the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Investigations, and narcotics enforcement, and spent her entire 20 years working field-related assignments, which included the infamous gang unit known as the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, or CRASH. Now a social justice advocate, she is the author of Black and Blue, the true story of an African-American woman on the LAPD, and the powerful secrets she uncovered. Then we'll explore historical warnings about NATO expansion eastward, focusing on George Cannon's concern in 1991 when he proposed a three year moratorium on NATO expansion, warning that a threatened Russia might produce, quote, a new Cold War, probably ending in a hot one, and the end of the effort to achieve a workable democracy in Russia. Joining us is Frank Castigliola, a Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Connecticut. His books include The Kennan Diaries and Roosevelt's Lost Alliances, and his latest book just out is Kennan, A Life Between Worlds. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Kennan's Warning on Ukraine. Then finally, we'll investigate the rise of the radical right at home and abroad and speak with Daniel Nexon, a professor in the Department of Government and the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, From 2009 to 2010, he was a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow in the U.S. Department of Defense, and in 2016, he helped coordinate the unofficial foreign policy group for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and he remains active in efforts to forge progressive foreign policy principles. He's the author of The Struggle for Power in Early Modern Europe, Religious Conflict, Dynastic Empires and International Change, and co-author of Exit from Hegemony, The Unraveling of the American Global Order. And we will discuss his article at Foreign Affairs, The Vexing Rise of the Transnational Right, Lessons from Interwar Europe. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Cheryl Dorsey, a retired sergeant. Of the Los Angeles Police Department, who worked patrol, narcotics, and vice assignments for all four bureaus of operation, raised in South Central Los Angeles, she embarked on a career in law enforcement at an early age, beginning with the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Investigations, and Narcotics Enforcement, and spent her entire 20 years working field-related assignments, which included the infamous gang unit known as the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums or Crash. She is an author and social justice advocate and is the author of Black and Blue, the true story of an African American woman in the LAPD and the powerful secrets she uncovered. Welcome to background briefing, Cheryl Dorsey. Thank you. So, Cheryl, what did you make of the video that was released on Friday night? Quite extensive of videos, in fact, of the arrest, the beating, and uh, not the killing, but he died shortly thereafter of Tyree uh, Nichols, which, of course, there was a great deal of concern that it would create you know, backlashes like what happened after the Rodney King beating, but it seems that people have listened to voices of restraint, particularly coming from Tyree Nichols' own mother. But how did the video strike you as a former police officer and an and African-American police officer?
1: Well, it was certainly very troubling. And so well, let me start with, you know, I'm a mom of four young men myself. And so uh, I look at this uh, young man, Tyree Nichols, and he could have been my son. We see him being very measured and and, and trying to de-escalate the situation uh, when the officers first com- confront him. He was very reasonable and measured in his tone. Yet these officers we now know are young on the job, two to five years uh, they have. And so uh, they came in hot. They came in ready to do what it is they probably do on a nightly basis there in that Scorpion special task force, uh, a unit that they probably aren't even deserving of, don't have enough field experience, certainly don't have enough seniority to uh, work. And um, we saw them uh, misuse their authority. We saw those officers punish Tyree. They were never really in my mind trying to Take him into custody for anything, although they were barking orders turn around, get on the ground, put your hands behind your back. But we never saw anybody really making an attempt to get him into custody. I mean, this is a young man who's described as six foot, 140, or maybe 150 uh, pounds. Four or five big burly officers, and they couldn't get handcuffs on this young man. It was strictly about punishment. I believe they've done this before. It's reported that there was a young man who came into the police station to report um, similar abuse. Uh, he didn't die from uh, the way the officers treated him. And, and there was uh, nothing done administratively to investigate or um, respond to his complaint. And so when you, when you have uh, folks who don't pay attention uh, to the smoke, then you wind up with a raging forest fire. And, and now we have that in the death of Tyree Nichols
0: and the fact that he was tracked down and then beaten savagely which we saw on a camera which was just hideous just the, the power of those punches where he's been propped up and where he's sort of semi-conscious at any rate is just chilling but the idea that they were angry at him because he ran that he defied their authority how do you balance that against the advice which you often hear, which is, you know, try to comply and the last thing you want to do is run away. Well, we know that, you know, Tyree
1: was being very reasonable when he was initially confronted by the officers and they immediately started assaulting him. They pepper sprayed him for no good reason when they pulled him out of the car and threw him on the ground. And so uh, we now know that he was, you know, just a few hundred yards from where his mother lived. He was trying to get to his mother and that's why we heard him crying out and calling for his mom, hoping that maybe she might hear him and come out to see what was going on. And so all of what the officers did was uh, over the top, unnecessary, and they continued to escalate the situation. And, And I just believe that this is how these young officers conduct themselves in this special unit that they're assigned to. And so, um, I appreciate the fact that the police chief fired uh five immediately, but there were several others who we now know were standing around and and may have um, involved themselves in uh, assaulting Tyree once he was um, in a way where he couldn't even defend himself and and every officer who was on scene is acquiescing police misconduct, so therefore they are committing police misconduct and as quickly as the police chief fired these five, she should be looking to fire the others who were on scene, uh, who failed to intervene, who failed to render aid. And so this chief has got some problems on her hand uh, for a number of reasons. There's a lot of talk of transparency. And while she's been somewhat transparent, um, I think right now she's in PR mode because she understands that she serves at the pleasure of the mayor. And if the community uh, really found out You know, what I know about police officers who are overzealous, police officers who lie in the midst of an administrative investigation, give false and misleading statements, as these officers did. We heard them on the audio fabricating probable cause for the stop. And I'm certain that when they were uh, confronted by a supervisor and and they had to tell that we've got a suspect uh, in custody, let them tell it, at the hospital and the supervisor goes and sees the kinds of injuries mr tyree had uh, i think that's what prompted the police chief to say well let me take a look at the sky cop cameras in the city to see what exactly went on and then once she saw that of course then she had to act so she's got a, a squadron of officers who lied, who have lied went to the mother's house after the incident and told tyree's mom that her son had been arrested for dui he was on his way to the hospital for medical treatment because they had to pepper spray him and said she couldn't go to the hospital to see him because he was going to get booked after that. All of those are lies. And so that lets me know that these police officers in every arrest report they've written, every uh, investigation they've been involved in is now tainted. And it's a problem for the chief. It's a problem for the district attorney.
0: And one of the uh, police officers in the in- initial arrest who's seen on the police camera, uh, body cam, him washing his eyes. They accidentally, I guess, pepper sprayed each other. He was white. So is there any anything to this idea that white police officers have done this before, particularly with the, the beating of Rodney King, and this time around it's black police officers and the video was released really quickly? Is that just because of the the gravity of the situation? There's no there's no double standard here, is there?
1: Well, you know, I can't speak to the chief's heart. I, I like to think that, you know, um, part and parcel was that, I mean, she understood how bad this was. And so she's in damage control. She's trying to, I believe, uh, protect that organism, the police department. She had to act. She had to do something and she had to do it quickly. And I think it was smart of her to do that, but there's a lot more that she needs to do. These are young officers who are caught up in the police culture. They're caught up in the mindset, you know, that they think they're Billy Badass because they work a specialized unit. You know, they're somehow uh, better than patrol officers. They're in an elite uh, squad. They call themselves the Scorpions and they were just drunk with power. They've been able to beat people up uh, and not uh, be held accountable on at least one occasion. We know because a young man came in and complained and now he's come forward. Uh, And it's been reported that he had actually gone to the news there locally to talk about uh, the way these officers dealt with him. And so when you don't have accountability and you don't do anything to deter bad behavior, officers live to offend again. And ethnicity really has nothing to do with it. We see more white officers engaged in this kind of activity because it's more of them on these police departments. Uh, There are 18,000 across the United States, and they just don't have the numbers of black police officers to the same extent that they do white police officers.
0: But the chief of police who who is engaged in transparency and released these videos, she's in charge of a police department where this activity apparently was routine. As you pointed out, Cheryl Dorsey, as a former sergeant in the Los Angeles Police Department who was involved with the Community Resources Against Street Hulam's crash program in, in African American neighborhoods. The fact of the matter is that this is happening on her watch, and if this behavior is routine on the part of police in these scorpion units who arrest people but don't tell them why they're arresting them and then proceed to beat them up for whatever reason, that that's the difficult part for me to understand. I guess there's two questions. One, on the other hand, did this chief of police not know what was happening on her watch, or she can't have it both ways, right? She can't condemn it at the same time, suggest that somehow it didn't happen. I mean, if it happens on you, watch, you're responsible, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. She's the chief of police. The buck stops with her. And she said as much in some of her uh, press conferences. And so I I am uh, a firm believer that she is absolutely responsible. And while nobody's calling for her to step down, I mean, truth be told, she needs to go. She needs to go. She's got a unit of officers. And, you know, we have a saying on LAPD, you know, when you get in trouble, uh, you know, uh, supervisors will say, well, if you didn't know, you should have known. We're held to a higher standard. We're expected to know certain things. And so as you go higher up and promote up the ranks, uh, that standard, uh, that expectation also increases. And so you can't be a police chief and say, as she did on TV, well, I can't be everywhere uh, and know what my officers are doing at all times. No, you can't, cheat. but what you can do is make sure that you have field sergeants out there who are monitoring these officers in the field, who are showing up in the event that there's a use of force and managing that use of force properly. And so if she didn't know that this was going on, she should have known. If she didn't know that her officers went to Tyree Nichols' mother's home, hours after this incident occurred, lied to the mother and told her, that her son had been arrested for DUI and was on his way to be booked. If the chief didn't know that, she should have known. And I suspect she did know. I suspect she figured it out. I suspect that the officers lied initially, but she figured it out from the sky cop camera that what they said had occurred and the injuries sustained by Tyree did not comport. And that's why she took the action that she took. And so I'm appreciative of it, but truth be told, uh, Chief Davis needs to go.
0: So what was going on then, do you think, uh, Cheryl Dorsey, with these police who, in the Scorpion unit who apparently routinely did this kind of thing, what were they looking for? Why, what did they suspect, do you think, about Tyree Nichols, who was literally, he said, you know, I, I'm on my way home. You know, I'm, uh, He was almost home. And when he was being beaten up, he was calling out for his mother. So what did they think was going on with him? Why did they pull him over? He didn't have a broken taillight or anything. So do we have any idea of what, what their methodology is and what they were looking for?
1: We don't know what they were looking for,
0: but I can just
1: tell you based on my 20 years of experience, like I said, these are, um, you know, I, I call them elephant hunters you know, and they just routinely stop people because they can. They do what we call pretext stops. In other words, if they can find a reason to stop you, you no taillight, you know, no current registration, window tint, any little ticky tag vehicle code violation is a reason to stop someone. And because they're tasked with getting guns off the street, there's a lot of people out there that drive around with guns in their cars, and they may have a legitimate reason to stop that person or not they might make it up, as they did in the case of Tyree Nichols. They accused him of driving around the streets recklessly. Well, the chief has said there's no evidence of that on the cameras in the city, that he was driving around recklessly. And so I think that this is just how they comport themselves routinely. This time, it went really, really bad. And when they realized it had gone bad, they began to manufacture probable cause for their actions. We heard it on the audio when they said that he, Tyree, got out of the car and punched at one of the officers when they said that Tyree had reached for their gun. Uh, We never saw any evidence of Tyree. He didn't even seem to be able to uh, reach for himself, let alone reach for an officer's gun and have the, the stamina and the strength to pull it out of his holster. So I think this is just how these officers are. They're bullies. They're cowards, and they've been able to get away with
0: it. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, we're hearing now that maybe there's some evidence of of a different response from police departments, more transparency, having all of this video released. uh, It's taken a little while, but much quicker than has happened in earlier incidents. So... Do you see any sense that there's a turning point here? Because every time this happens, there's calls for reform. And as far as I can tell, nothing much happens. Is anything happening now or likely to happen? are the observation that this is setting a different standard and releasing information to the public quicker? Do you buy any of that?
1: Well, I, I think long term, uh, n- not much is going to change. But I mean, in the short term, I, I like what the chief did in terms of releasing um, the, or in conjunction with the district attorney, making it known that the officers who had already been fired by the chief are now going to be charged. I think that went a long way to prevent you know, much damage from being done across the country uh, when we finally did have an opportunity to see the video, because at that point we knew the public knew that at least the officers were charged and they were charged with fairly serious crimes. And so there was a level of accountability that was about to be meted out. And so that was a good thing. But in terms of uh, how do you deter another similar Scorpion group out there? Because there are other groups on these police departments, much like the Scorpion squad. How do you deter them tonight from going out and mistreating and abusing people? Well, you don't. You have it because these officers know at the end of the day, while these four or five are charged with a crime and they may very well go to jail, um, there's going to be a civil suit. They understand that too. But guess who will pay for the civil suit? The taxpayers, not the police department and not the city, not the individual officer. And so until you end qualified immunity, until you quit protecting and sheltering errant officers, until you get those officers off the street at the first sign of trouble until you get them off your department when you determine that they're liars and they don't have the temperament and skill set to be a police officer, we're going to continue to see this.
0: Well, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, who's a retired Sergeant With the Los Angeles Police Department, who worked patrol, narcotics, and vice assignments for all four bureaus of operation, raised in South Central Los Angeles, she embarked on a career in law enforcement at an early age, beginning with the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Investigations, and Narcotics Enforcement, and spent her entire 20 years working field-related assignments, which included the infamous gang unit, known as the Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, or CRASH, and she is an author and social justice advocate, and is the author of Black and Blue, the true story of an African American woman on the LAPD and the powerful secrets she uncovered. We can take a brief station break and back looking into historical warnings about NATO expansion, Eastwood focusing on George Cannon's concern in 1991 when he proposed a three year moratorium on NATO expansion, warning that a threatened Russia might produce, quote, a new Cold War probably ending in a hot one and the end of the effort to achieve a workable democracy in Russia.
2: This morning I woke up in a curfew-
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Frank Costigliola, who is the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Connecticut. His books include The Kennan Diaries and Roosevelt's Lost Alliances, and his latest book just out is Kennan, A Life Between Worlds. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frank Costigliola. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, George Cannon uh, is probably the most famous American diplomat, certainly of the modern era, famous for the containment policy that uh, dictated much of the Cold War. And, of course, he spent most of his life uh, running away from containment and recognizing its limits and its pitfalls. But in terms of what's happening now in Ukraine... I think the most recent thing that comes up in your book is that in terms of concerns and warnings about NATO expansion eastward, George Kennan in 1991 proposed a three-year moratorium on NATO expansion, warning that a threatened Russia might produce, quote, a new Cold War, probably ending in a hot war, and the end of the effort to achieve a workable democracy in Russia. So... That is something to think about, is it not, Frank? Yes,
3: it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. And I, I'm not sure, you know, your listeners might also be interested, I, I published uh, actually yesterday in the magazine Foreign Affairs, um, an essay on Kenan and Ukraine, which actually went into much greater detail on the subject than I did in the book.
0: So, was there ever any discussion, and, and of course, in the critical period of the 1990s when Clinton was in the White House. Was there ever any talk of a kind of buffer in Central Europe, a Finlandization of Central Europe?
3: Well, I think that there was a lot of discussion and, and the the, the uh, on a variety of uh, possibilities. And the d- decision to expand NATO and to expand it the way it was rapidly, and um, to include also former Soviet republics in the expansion of NATO that was very much a uh, Controversial decision within the U.S. government, and there are many people in Congress, and as well as people in the Clinton administration, and you know, in the think tanks and so forth in Washington, who thought this was not a wise idea. So it's not a foregone conclusion, foreordained conclusion that NATO would expand in the way it did. Now, in terms of a, I think a lot of the discussion looked to not necessarily a Finlandization of Eastern Europe, but rather. A, eliminating that border between East and West or or mitigating that that line between East and West by uh, constituting, as as many people thought was a good idea, Gorbachev, among others, a European-wide security organization that would include Russia. The, The idea was that the Warsaw Pact, Russia's Soviet Union's military alliance was gone. The NATO should recognize that the Cold War was over. And the United States should disband NATO or NATO allies should disband NATO and join together with Eastern Europe and Russia in a European wide uh, security organization. I think that was an interesting idea that unfortunately was not uh, pursued. And the reason it was not pursued is that NATO has been since 1949, since it was set up a vehicle, above all, a vehicle for U.S. political influence in Europe. And Washington was very reluctant to give that up.
0: But at the time of these faithful decisions, of course, the point man on Russia for Bill Clinton was Strobe Talbot. And he was in contact with George Kennan, who he admired greatly, but didn't really listen to. That's right. That's the irony. You know, as I put it in the book, he was was honored,
3: but not heated. Um, Heated, H-E-E-D. and that's, and that's really unfortunate. Talbot was very, very, as, as other documents show, Talbot was very, pretty much in, in, intent on expanding NATO and thought that that, was, that would be a good idea. And Russia would have to adjust. The idea was maybe the Russians are not in favor of it now, but they would have to adjust. They, 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 you know, Russia was in serious economic difficulties in the 90s, and the idea was, well, they would just have to uh, go along with the new order of things.
0: Well, the other theory, though, is, of course, is that it was always a security state. The KGB sort of ran the Soviet Union from behind the scenes, and then they just had that brief interregnum with a very corrupt and alcoholic, Boris Yeltsin. And then along came this colorless, faceless guy from minor a figure in the, in the KGB who turns out to be a, a Stalinist and a continuum of now it's well, become a security state. I mean, right.
3: I mean, you know, we can never, unfortunately we cannot replay history and try different, you know, what if scenarios to see what might have, what might have happened if NATO had not expanded. But you remember, you remember um, that Putin really went out of his way at first to, uh, to, to uh, appeal to the United States after 9-11. Uh, Putin was the first major world leader to send his condolences and pledges of support to George W. Bush, Um uh, the, the Russians supported the United States in their uh, war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it's 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 it not a foregone conclusion. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Putin had to turn out the way he did. Uh, from like, you have to look at this from the Russian perspective. In 1991, in 1991, uh, Soviet forces were in eastern Germany. American and other Western forces were in West Germany. And by 2014, when Putin takes Crimea. That the American slash NATO forces have moved far, far to the east. I mean, that's something that Americans don't think about very much. But from the Russian point of view, and, and not just not just the nationalistic Russians, it was as, as, as Talbot told Clinton in 1995. I have a memorandum. Uh, and I quote in that article in Foreign Affairs published yesterday. As Talbot told Clinton in 1995, a wide Spectrum of Russians, including people of all kind of political persuasions, wide variety of Russians were opposed to the expansion of NATO. Um, so it's not just Putin, not just you know uh, fanatical dead enders or whatever. It's it was, and one reason that Putin has acted the way he did is that he calculated that it would be popular popular in Russia because of resentment of the expansion of NATO, and also you know also. In 1991, when the Soviet Union fell apart, America and Americans were enormously popular in Russia. It was the idea that, well, okay, Soviet Union locked us away from the rest of the world. And now we could experience uh, uh, you know, American uh, culture and, and learn from the United States and so forth. And Russians came away from that experience in the 1990s, partly because of the economic downturn, kind of disillusioned. Uh, with, with America. And look at the difference, look at the difference between the United States after World War II. When we won an absolute victory, along with the Russians and other countries, won an absolute victory over Nazi Germany, the United States went out of its way, uh, starting with the Marshall Plan, but other things as well, to integrate Western Germany into the West, to make sure the Western, West Germans were prosperous, to make them feel, you know, there were all kinds of uh, person-to-person programs bringing West Germans to the United States to make them feel that they had a place in the West. We didn't have that kind of outreach to, nearly to that extent with regard to Russia. Uh, so in a way, I think it's a missed opportunity. Again, we don't know what might, things might have turned out the same, but uh, certainly the United States did not uh, play its cards in very with the kind of the long-range vision that it really did after World War II.
0: Well, indeed, there was dancing in the end zone. I mean, the idea that we spent trillions so-called winning the Cold War, but then didn't right. invest very much money in securing the so-called victory. I mean, it's, in retrospect, of course, it's ridiculous and sad. But Cannon himself was in on the Marshall Plan from the beginning, was he not? Um, that's right. And, and that's one of his major initiatives, because right. he, as, and, as you said at the beginning, he thought... You know, he ran away from
3: containment later because containment had become too militarized. But he, what he wanted in terms of containment was political and economic measures, and the Marshall Plan was precisely the
0: kind of thing he favored. Sure, and Stalin was so much more worried about the Marshall Plan than he was about America's nuclear monopoly. That's right, because Stalin saw
3: that the Czechs and the Poles were interested in participating. And, and historians, you know, historians of Russia who had access to Soviet documents— been able to document that it's after Stalin saw the appeal of the Marshall Plan that he decided they had to really crack down on Eastern Europe and rein those countries in tightly because otherwise they'd be lured in, into the West so it was the lure the lure of the Marshall Plan which we did not uh, replicate uh, in the 1990s and don't forget I mean after all Clinton achieved the budget surplus you know in cooperation with New Gingrich but Clinton achieved the budget surplus in the mid to late 1990s. Some of that money could have been used for a kind of Marshall Plan for Russia. would have paid dividends in the future, I think.
0: Well, but that leads you to the situation in Ukraine and the choices that the Ukrainian people made at Maidan. Surely these countries like Ukraine and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, etc., and the Baltics, they don't want... Gangster government, which is what Putin offers. I mean, he's got one gangster on his side that runs Belarus. Yeah, but, right, right. Right. I mean, I, it, how do you yeah. da- how do you navigate that? Because I get a lot of criticism for, you know, basically being in support of, of the survival of the Ukrainians at the moment. You know, friends on the left basically blame the war not on Putin but on NATO expansion, and that seems absurd to me. Well, okay. I mean, I, we cannot absolve Putin from waging a brutal war that's
3: that's killing uh, innocent civilians in Ukraine and, and on and on. I mean, you know, NATO expanded, that, that, that did not mean that Putin had to go to war. I mean, you know, that's, I, I, I agree with, with the, what you just said. But on the other hand, you know, I think one way of looking at this is, okay, so you look at NATO expansion that, of course, Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia and and Poland and so forth, wanted to join NATO. Well, two things, one is there's a difference between countries that had been independent or independent for a long time, like Poland and Hungary joining NATO, and countries which had been part of the Soviet Union joining NATO. I think there's a different psychological impact of that on Moscow. But the larger point is, of course, these countries in Eastern Europe wanted to join NATO, but was that and is that in the interest of the United States and is that really in the interest of nato i mean i'm old enough to remember that in the 1960s and 70s a very live contentious issue in defense circles and you know think tanks and places like that was was it possible to defend west germany with conventional forces if the soviets invaded west germany could we defend west germany and europe with conventional forces, or would we have to go nuclear? So this is when the United States had a massive number of soldiers and troops and tanks and so forth in Europe, and you know, the, the, again, the question: Could you defend West Germany? Now, now NATO has expanded, as you know, far to the east, and, and, and is geographically, uh, strategically, in a far more vulnerable position. So, you know, can we really can we really defend Latvia and Lithuania? With conventional forces, probably not. And the, as a consequence, NATO, which I was, you know, I was a NATO fellow at Brussels. I mean, I've written on NATO. I'm a strong fan of NATO. But NATO, I think, even in this war now, NATO, in effect, has become a NATO light because is NATO really able to honor uh, Article Five, which is collective security? If it's attack on one, it's an attack on one is an attack on all. Can the United States and its allies really defend Lithuania uh, with the convention of forces without going nuclear so you know it's it's like something that the Eastern Europeans wanted but whether it was a wise decision from the viewpoint of the United States and even from NATO is another story
0: but Finland and and Sweden want to join now so
3: sure does, sure in this seem- context right I, I yeah right in this context of of heightened fear of Russia. But again, there's a difference between Finland and Sweden and Lithuania and Latvia. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm not sure how your listeners are going to react to this, but it's a fact of life that large countries are sensitive about foreign forces on their borders. Think about, think about. let's just imagine that China had a military alliance with Venezuela and then China was expanding this alliance with the, with the happy approval of People you know, countries in Central America, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and so forth. And then China was negotiating with Mexico about Mexico joining this alliance. How would the United States react? How would the United States react? Think of how the United States today still punishes Cuba for its alliance with the Soviet Union sixty years ago. We could say, yeah, it's a dictatorship, but there are lots of dictatorships that we don't we don't have an embargo on. So what I'm saying here is large countries do not like having, don't feel comfortable having foreign alliances on their, on, their, um, on their borders. And neither would the
0: United States. Well, indeed, Putin has tried to point that out. And it, it's an inescapably correct analysis, as far as I can say. Of course. I mean, we're freaking out over immigrants, <laughs> refugees right. now from uh, Venezuela right. coming across right. the Mexican border.
3: Right, right, right. I mean, then, then the issue is, um, what what is a long-range American national interest? I mean, is it really in America's interest, or is, is, it, is it viable, is it is it practical to have a robust American military presence on the border of, of, let's say, on the border of Ukraine or on the border of Russia, which is Lithuania borders on Russia and so forth. Is that viable in the long run? Or is that an overextension of American strength? This is the United States, which has a problem Agreeing that it should pay its debts,
0: <laughs> and we're waiting for that shoe to drop with the lunatics right, right. now running well, the mean, house. You know, this you this know. is something what?
3: that Kennan was very sensitive of, sensitive to that. Uh, you know that uh, that in, uh, in order for a country to wage a successful foreign policy, it needs to have a strong domestic base, and it needs to be careful not to overextend itself.
0: Exactly. Well, there's a lot more to talk about. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but um, I highly recommend your book. And, uh, oh, thank I'm, you. Thank, thank you for joining us, Okay, Frank thank you very much. It's been a
3: pleasure. Okay,
0: bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Frank Castigliola, who is the Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Connecticut. His books include The Cannon Diaries and Roosevelt's Lost Alliances, and his latest book just out is Canon, A Life Between Worlds. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, Kennan's Warning on Ukraine. We're gonna take a brief station break and back investigating the rise of the radical right at home and abroad.
2: Can rebel that the Moscow bullets missed. Ask him what he thinks of voting communists. I oh, said that i in the hills of Tibet. How many monks did the Chinese get in a war torn swamp? Stop any mercenary. Check the British bullets in his armor
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available twenty-four-seven at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Nexon, who's a professor in the Department of Government and the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. From 2009 to 2010, he was Counsel and Foreign Relations and International Affairs Fellow in the United States Department of Defense. And in 2016, he helped coordinate the unofficial foreign policy group for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And he remains active in efforts to forge progressive foreign policy principles. He's the author of The Struggle for Power in Early Modern Europe, Religious conflict, d- dynastic empires, and international change, and co author of Exit from Hegemony The Unraveling of the American Global Order. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs The Vexing Rise of the Transnational Rights Lessons from Interwar Europe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Nexon.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And it's not difficult to see a sort of link or a comparison with the January 6th assault on the Capitol and the recent attack on the Capitol and the Capitol buildings in Brasilia by uh, Bolsonaro supporters. So in terms of a kind of global right, it's got to be bigger than, than the musings of Stephen Bannon, right? I mean, he, he's the only person that seems to be the connective tissue with so many of these movements. But um, he's a pretty odd and erratic character. So are we exaggerating his influence?
4: Bannon's influence specifically, I think it's easy to exaggerate. When he tried to set up his big transnational network with European far-right parties and movements, he was, I don't know, of moderate success. But I think that uh, we should not discount the extensive transnational ties in the Euro-Atlantic area that connect Uh, far-right movements, what we call reactionary populists, things like MAGA, those are quite extensive. Uh, And they take two forms. They take concrete interpersonal ties, like what you're thinking about Bannon uh, and various uh, Brazilian officials. But they also take uh, ideational and symbolic ties, ties of emulation, ties of mimicry.
0: Well, uh, Bolsonaro's sense, of course, were recently at Mar-a-Lago. I think maybe at the time of the assault in uh, Brasilia, And Bolsonaro himself showed up in Florida. So there's definite connections between Trump and Bolsonaro, aren't there?
4: Yes, yes, there are. Uh, And Bannon's uh, relationship with uh, the sun goes back uh, further than uh, the most recent developments in Brazil.
0: So in terms of the person that's challenging Trump, although he's not declared that, and the minute he does, of course, Trump will start sliming him, there's... Absolutely inescapable connections here between Ron DeSantis and people like Orbán, Hungary's authoritarian leader who's responsible for electoral autocracy, which the Republican Party has been mimicking. And, of course, Vladimir Putin signed into law an expansion of Russia's 2013 bill banning the exposure of children to gay propaganda, and Hungary picked up on that passing a law to discourage gender ideology in 2021. I'm actually reading from your article, Daniel. And in the state of Florida in 2022, they enacted the sort of don't say gay bill. So what's the connective tissue there between the possible next uh, Republican candidate for president if Trump goes off the rails, what she appears to be doing?
4: Well, it depends on who that candidate is. Well, let's, let's
0: assume it's Ron Sanders.
4: Well, there's, I mean, as you say, and as you quoted from the article, there's very good evidence that uh, the that in Florida there's been conscious borrowing from uh, Orban in particular when it comes to some of these uh, measures to that they would say are combating wokeness and things like that. And those connections aren't just with DeSantis and with uh, Florida politics, they also, obviously CPAC has developed a very uh, warm relationship with Orban over the years. Uh, And CPAC, even many years ago, was hosting uh, people associated with what was then the National Front, which is now the National Rally in France. Uh, And so I think there's been a a drift within what we might call the mainstream far right uh, in the Republican Party uh, towards, as you say, this kind of uh, real desire for a a strongman approach uh, that will stamp out uh, the corrosive effects of liberalism and globalism and all those things. And that, uh, they sort of have come to view in the face of losing the culture wars, the state and the power of the state is the only way to fight back. And what we've seen in Florida, you know, I don't know how much DeSantis is himself completely committed to the anti-wokeness crusade and how much he's stoking the base but certainly there's no doubt that that he or anybody else who's trying to capture that reactionary populist wing that maga wing of the republican party there's no doubt that they will push for those sorts of things in office and use executive orders uh, and maybe legislative power if they have the trifecta uh, to try to implement policies in the name of restricting left far you know far what they would say far left uh, extremism or, or out-of-control left, but they'll, they'll do that in a way that will uh, significantly extend the power of the state, uh, and in ways that I think will look not unlike some of the things we've seen in Hungary. I think I'm thinking particularly of DeSantis's willingness to selectively punish corporations who don't toe the line, which is a very typical thing that we see in right-wing populist regimes.
0: Well, but wokeness itself, or anti-wokeness, or, you know, Florida's where the woke come to die, just to quote DeSantis, isn't it a dog whistle? I mean, it seems a dog whistle for attacking African Americans, which DeSantis is doing in his banning the teaching of uh, African American history in schools.
4: I think it's what we would call technically a floating signifier. Wokeness is kind of a stand-in for everything bad. Uh, or everything that you think is bad. Uh, and I will say what's been interesting is that this is an American phenomenon, but it's been picked up in Europe and particularly in, in the far right in Italy and in France, as a, and we saw with Putin actually, with as a set of discourses to describe broadly speaking, non-traditional family relationships, non-traditional gender roles, minorities claiming too much rights, whatever you want to uh, label under you want to throw under that uh, that umbrella. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I do think that what it's it's done is it's been an attack on diversity initiatives, uh, and it's been an attack both on what, you know, I think people might agree are sort of the excesses of DEI, but also just more fundamentally on anything that would smack of continuing to challenge uh, white racial hierarchies, both at the level of cultural and education and at the level of workplace initiatives. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's an attack on the rights of a lot of minorities our ability to rebalance the, the workplace and civil society in ways that, that account for structural racism. So
0: just back to uh, Orban and Hungary, of course, as you mentioned, he spoke at CPAC recently, and then prior to that, Tucker Carlson spent a week in Hungary broadcasting there and doing fawning interviews with Orban. Tucker Carlson himself, of course, is one of the most prominent apologists for Putin, and there is a pro putin caucus of sorts in the house particularly amongst the freedom the so-called freedom caucus which is the tail that wags the dog now that mccarthy has caved into them and given them everything they wanted so this is a a real and present danger isn't it? That, i mean if you were in putin's shoes you would probably uh, your best play might well be to influence the House of Representatives to cut funds to
4: Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, this goes way back. If you think about uh, the last round of Ukraine stuff, so the, the Ukraine crisis in 2014, that was the prelude to the invasion uh, last year. Essentially what happened was that the, the uh, intervention, interference in Ukraine that led to these Russian-backed breakaway republics, uh, the seizure and annexation of Crimea, that produced a big wave of U.S. sanctions. And part of the reason why the Russians got interested in supporting Trump uh, and got interested in, uh, I think, kind of essentially subverting the Republican Party, trying to use these standard operating procedures they, they use to kind of move it and build relationships, uh, particularly recently with far-right parties, the things we saw with the NRA, for example, a lot of the, the reasoning for that is that Russia, you know, it's been confirmed, is relatively weak in terms of its power resources versus the United States, the kind of hard material power resources. And so under those conditions, what's your best bet? It's to cultivate relationships with uh, friendly or make friendly relationships with uh, politicians and with political movements that you can use as an end run to subvert. And that, in in the case of Trump in 2016, was to subvert the sanctions regime. Uh, And now it'll be uh, to subvert the uh, Western support for for Ukraine and and, uh, the Ukraine-Russia war. And so, yeah, I think that we're just seeing a continuation of tactics and strategies that have been underway for quite some time. If anything, what's interesting is that it's become a little bit more difficult for Putin in the face of the backlash to the Ukrainian intervention in the sense that some parties, particularly in Europe, that were more supportive of Russia have had to back away from that position uh, under the kind of pressure of the evidence coming out of Ukraine uh, and I but you know as you say uh, you know in the United States you have uh, Tucker Carlson the most influential television personality of the modern right uh, and a bunch of other people relentlessly pushing Putin propaganda in order to soften support uh, for um, continued backing of Ukraine uh, and uh, that for seeing that through the same usual suspects of the kind of uh, far right we MAGA-esque, but the the far-right Republican crowd in the House who have always been attracted to Putin uh, in part because of the way that Russia has this weird hold on some of the American reactionary mind as a bastion uh, of traditional gender roles, a bastion of traditional family, a bastion of traditional Christian virtues. It's leveraged that in, in its efforts to Russia has leveraged those in its efforts to build support uh, in far-right and right-wing movements in the West.
0: Well, there's an extraordinary um, story out there that I'm trying to pin down, and that is with the arrest of uh, Charlie McGonigal, the head of counterintelligence at the FBI in New York, who turns out to have been working with the Russians and on Deripaska's payroll, Deripaska being one of Putin's uh, oligarchs who, was very close to Trump's campaign manager Manafort. He, Manafort, he borrowed $30 million from Deripaska and Deripaska of course is a pretty tough customer so you don't want to be in a situation where you owe that guy money. And Deripaska was able to, or at least Manafort was able to change the Republican platform in 2016 to please the Kremlin. But now, with the arrest of Charlie McGonagall, there are indications that McGonagall may have been the person on the inside who was able to sway Comey and force his hand uh, to go public just before the election about Hillary Clinton's emails on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Hillary Clinton herself blames Comey for her electoral loss in 2016 and if this is true and this was done by McGonagall at the behest of the Russians then it is an extraordinarily powerful story, much more powerful than the uh, than what the Mueller investigation was able to bring to the table. And, of course, the brilliant execution of this, if Putin's behind this, was, of course, that uh, Trump's fingerprints aren't on it. So
4: this is a, another shoe that might drop. It's possible. I think that the, the one of the big tragedies of the Mueller investigation was that it never explored what would have been the most productive area of investigation, which is all of the financial and monetary dealings that were involved, say, in the Trump organization being a way of laundering money for uh, Russian Kremlin-affiliated, quote-unquote, Russian oligarchs, uh, and the ways in which that world is so flush with uh, money coming out of the former Soviet Union in general, and Russia in particular, never really followed any of those leads very effectively nor did it investigate, as well as it could, the kind of broader context of Russian penetration, attempts to penetrate far-right circles and to penetrate Republican circles. Uh, I think the Senate report uh, was actually better on a lot of these issues, although it, on, it went out its way. The majority version of it was exonerate right? Trump hear me
0: Right, but nobody read the Senate report, nor, nor the Mueller report, right? So that's the tragedy of American politics in many ways, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the issue got really outmaneuvered uh, and, you know, the, I think the pro-Trump uh, crowd was able to really outmaneuver people on that issue and they were able to do so for two reasons. One is that it is complicated, <laughs> involved a lot of different moving parts uh, and none of them were necessarily, I mean, maybe this one will be, but none of them have the kind of very simple smoking gun story or, or had that I think is easy to tell but secondly i think that a lot of people in the sort of left leaning media really kind of told stories that were ridiculous about you know trump being a long term sleeper agent they managed to create a they managed to help create a way of representing what the russia scandal was that uh, i think made it easier to dismiss I mean, it made it easier for for that to get dismissed within Republican circles, which is the people who had to be moved on this frame. So just in the last
0: couple of minutes, I want to get back to your article, Daniel, and particularly talk about your analysis that reactionary populism, both from within and without, is currently the most pressing threat to liberal democracy. And the, you made analogies or lessons from interwar Europe. So... Just briefly walk us through those lessons, you know, and similarities and differences, in other
4: words. Well, we always have to be careful about drawing historical lessons from periods of time that are a century apart, but there are some interesting parallels between what we call reactionary populism, which is an umbrella term for the far right, for MAGA, for uh, various kinds of right-wing populists, uh, new you know, new right na- right nationalists, etc. Uh, and interwar fascism properly understood. Now, I need to be clear, the problem, and we say this in the article, with discussions about interwar fascism is that they quickly become discussions of Nazism uh, or of particular moments in the evolution of Italian fascism. If you actually look at fascism as a transnational international movement, uh, in the late 1920s to the early 1930s, what you discover is that it was extremely diverse. You had anti-racist fascists, you had anti semitic fascists, you had a lot of uh, fascist sentiment or, or pro-fascist curiosity among national self-determination movements, anti-colonial movements were attracted to variants of the ideology. And so it's important to keep in mind that it really was much more incohate Uh, And in many of its manifestations were much less genocidal uh, than the version that eventually became predominant, which was Nazism. So that being said, what do we see? Well, we see then as in now a lot of networking, exchange of ideas among right-wing figures, far-right figures uh, internationally. We see efforts to build uh, tighter transnational connections, to have various kinds of congresses and Uh, meetings uh, and to organize some of the stuff that you alluded to earlier that that Bannon has had his his fingers in. Uh, And so we see all of that, and we see that that can be pretty dangerous. It can mean that you have uh, uh, movements that are quick to adapt, that can share ideas, that can can take principles that have worked one place and localize them to work another place politically, uh, that can adopt different strategies and tactics on the fly in response to what they see other people doing and what's working and what's not working. On the other hand, one of the things that's also interesting about interwar fascism understood in this broader sense was its very uh, diversity made it pretty vulnerable to fragmentation. It it turned out at the end of the day to be virtually impossible to develop a truly sort of pan-national fascist movement precisely because these local disagreements, because you're dealing at some level with groups that are nationalist and they're nationalist their, their nationalisms are going to run into each other, they're going to lead to uh, conflicts, that that those kinds of features make uh, the movement vulnerable not only to fragmentation, but to cooptation. So it's possible to peel off supporters uh, at the margin. It's possible to find variants that are less threatening to liberal democracy or less threatening to uh, minorities and to cultivate... Uh, relations with them or to, uh, to sort of try to boost them in various ways. Uh, and so in a sense, you know, yeah, it's, it's frightening that these movements are still gathering steam and that ultimately, oftentimes they seem to want to end liberal democracy as we know it, that they have this very strong illiberal character. Uh, but on the other hand, we've also seen that it's possible often to for some of these groups, you know, to, for some of these groups have to moderate anyway in some cases to get into power, and then in doing so, you can cultivate support with them. One of the things we point to is the interesting divisions that are developing between the law and justice in Poland uh, and uh, Orban, his party in, in Hungary. Uh, and those divisions have to do, in many respects, with different attitudes towards Russia. You know, Poland is very hardline opposed to Russia for historical reasons and also very specific reasons about uh, the. Leadership of Law and Justice, Orbán's been much more friendly, and that's made it increasingly difficult for them to coordinate on matters like uh, trying to uh, mutually block EU action against democratic body sliding. And I think the Biden administration has made a decision to not pressure Law and Justice so much on its more illiberal characteristics, uh, but to um, reward them for support for uh, Ukrainian. For the for Ukraine and and a support that's all ultimately pretty important for the fate of I think liberal democracy in the West Uh, and those are the kinds of things and those are the kinds of compromises I think that that you often have to make but also that historically we see that when they are made and they're made intelligently can be fairly effective. Some fascist governments were kept out of the Second World War that could have allied with Germany Italy for example by the use of selective inducements and those movements as the fascism became increasingly stigmatized because of how it was playing out uh, in europe uh, moved away from from the more extreme versions of fascism so there's just a lot of room to maneuver it's easy to to uh to move, view these movements as monolithic when they're not or view these movements as more capable than they actually are at the same time i think it's it's easy to underestimate
0: well, Daniel Nexon, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Nixon, who's a professor in the Department of Government and the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. From 2009 to 2010, he was a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow in the U.S. Department of Defense. And in 2016, he helped coordinate the unofficial foreign policy group for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and he remains active in efforts to forge progressive foreign policy principles. He's the author of The Struggle for Power in Early Modern Europe, religious conflict, dynastic empires, and international change, and co-author of Exit from Hegemony, the unravelling of the American global order. And he has an article at Foreign Affairs, the vexing rise of the transnational right, lessons from interwar Europe. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us and i'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org bye for now the
2: guy that lived next door in took the kids to the park and disappeared by half-